0: Right, you uh, children three to eight years old you're dismissed to children 's church if you'd like to go on down there or if you want to sit with your parents, whatever you guys decide uh, go ahead and grab your bibles and turn to mark chapter eleven mark chapter eleven thank you bartons i that was a that was a ministry to me and thank you so much. I remind me of the when Jesus taught on prayer he didn't give us a model prayer he gave us um he gave us a model of prayer to follow. It wasn't a model prayer to recite uh, thoughtlessly, but when he began this model of prayer, he taught us and said, "Our Father, Our Father." It's the first person. Um, it's the first person uh, plural possessive. Whatever I don't know. I'm not a grammarian, <laughs> but uh, anyway, he uh, he said it's more than just my father. It's our father. And so as we go to the Lord in prayer, it's not just my father, but he treats me like I'm his only child. I just, that was a blessing to me. So I just really am thankful for that. And um, I want to just remind everybody, I forgot to mention this during announcement time, but if you do want a recording of the Science School uh, series that we're doing in the adult Bible class, uh, Brother Benjamin Shook is making a copy of that, just one to circulate around. And so... He's making that available out there if you would like to follow along with that series. Everyone in Mark 11? Mark 11. We're going to read beginning in verse 15. I mean, verse 11, excuse me. Uh, it says, Mark 11, verse 11. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked around about upon all things, and now the evening was come, and he went unto Bethany, a city a village just outside of Jerusalem, with the twelve And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might have anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet come. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer or permit that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And He taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests Heard it and saw how they might destroy Jesus, for they feared Him, because all the people were astonished at His doctrine. And when evening was come, He went out of the city. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree from the day before. It was dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remember it, saith unto Him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus, answering, saith unto him, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that these things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. And when ye stand praying, forgive if ye have ought against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your this passage of Scripture. We thank you for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he took just uh, simple objects in life that he passed by and he used them and, and illustrated them to teach us truths from your Word and heavenly truths that we need to hear and we need the Holy Spirit to apply to our lives. I do pray that You would bless this time as I preach Your Word. Help me, Lord, to communicate what You have taught me. And uh, Lord, that Your Holy Spirit would apply Your Word in the needs of each individual that's in this room today and who's hearing this message. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, This last week, I got to go visiting with my boys. We we got to... um, walked, we just chose during lunchtime uh, to walk down on Tuesday to the Family Dollar Store and pick up some things I needed for the church, just some odds and ends for some work I was doing around here. So I went to Family Dollar and walked down the street with them, and then we walked up from Ash Street, where the Family Dollar is, up to the Shook's house, and Mary Ann had something in the mail that came I wanted to pick up, and so went by there and had a really good visit, but on the way back on, I think it was Fifth Street, yes, Fifth Avenue uh, or Fifth Street. We were walking back this way, and we had just been there at the ball fields this last Sunday when we were playing um, uh, we were playing uh, T ball and uh, kickball. And so I was familiar with the area, but when we were walking back. I, I I was we were approaching these the ball field and the trees, and I said, "Hey, look, guys, there's some fruit on those trees." And Nate saw it, and he says, "Summer is coming," and you know he. He saw that and he just really, it clicked with him that the seasons are changing and summer is almost here and he's just ready for summer to be here, to go to the swimming pool because he thinks that's the coolest thing ever around here. So, uh, but you know, that's kind of the expectation that Christ had. He was not uh, thinking summer is coming when he saw the uh, leaves on this fig tree as he was passing by and going to, uh, in pursuit of Jerusalem. Uh, but he was expecting fruit to be there. And this is given in the context of Palm Sunday when uh, Jesus did enter the day, uh, the day before he had entered into the city and the people were so excited and they recognized him as you know, being the next king of the Jews and and, he, and he, they're just so excited that he might come and he might dethrone Rome and dethrone the Herods. And their rule over them and their corruptness, and they're just so excited. And if you read a little bit earlier in chapter eleven, verses one through ten, you get this whole scene—the triumphal entry—and they're saying, "Hosanna, Hosanna!" or "Save us, save us." A quotation from Psalm one one eighteen, I believe. And you know, it was used at that time of the Passover. And so, you have this great excitement, and Jesus goes into the city. And, but he's not fooled with their excitement about um, having him and making him king. But they see, he sees their hearts. And he illustrates the next day as he goes by this fig tree and uses this fig tree of a, of a, as an illustration of what was going on in the nation of Israel. Of really what was taking place. They showed so much excitement for him coming in, but he knew that their motives were wrong. And he knew that their actions were hypocritical. And so he uses this um, fig tree as an example. So it says in verse 12, on the morrow, um, when he, uh, that would be Monday of uh, Passover week, when they were come from Bethany, this small village, he was hungry. A- and he sees this fig tree from afar off and having leaves, he came if happily or expecting, he might find some fruit thereon. And when he came to it he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. So Jesus saw these leaves from afar off, and so these fig leaves should have indicated that there was fruit already there. And fig trees were pretty common along public roads. They were kind of like public property that people when they were traveling they could just take those figs and partake of them. It wasn't even it wasn't any private private property uh, these roads were not private property. So they could uh, access those publicly. But he, he came and he expected figs to be on there. Uh, just like that tree on Ash, uh, on 5th Avenue that I saw this last week. We saw the fruit, but at least on Tuesday, there were no leaves on it. And see, the principle that Jesus is trying to get across here is that he he saw the leaves. So it should have been fruit there because the fruit should be there before. It may not be ripened yet, but the fruit should have already been on there before the leaves even came, and so he expected those fi- figs to be on there, and so this tree appeared to be mature, seemed to be healthy, but we see at the end of verse 13, it's uh, he found nothing but leaves for the time of figs was not yet, and uh, you know just just to kind of address this as an aside, some people pick at this pa- passage and they say, if Jesus really was the Son of God, shouldn't he have known that it wasn't any fruit on it, you know. And uh, and we have to realize that when we are covering and studying the life of Christ, you see this in the life of Christ is that He he manifests or uses His attributes of, as the Son of God sometimes and sometimes He doesn't. And, and what is the qualification? I believe it's taught very clearly in the Gospels that He uses them to bring glory to God the Father. And so when an opportunity presents itself to bring glory to God the Father, He does that. For example, in John chapter 1, He sees Philip. Was it Philip? Uh, It was Nathaniel. It was when Philip went to Nathaniel. Nathaniel was under the tree, wasn't he? But Jesus never went to that tree. But when Nathaniel came to Him, he, he He said, I saw you under that fig tree when Philip came to you. See, He had that power to do that. But why did He do it then? Because, he impressed Nathaniel that he was the Son of God. It brought glory to, to himself and to God the Father. There was a spiritual purpose in why he did it. Here, he doesn't do it because he is trying to illustrate the expectation, I believe, of seeing the of expectation of fruit being there, but it wasn't. So we see here with this fig tree, it's really an illustration or a picture of hypocrisy. There was every evidence that fruit should have been there. It gave appearance and... And it put on appearances that it was genuinely mature. But when you really investigated the tree, you saw it was really un- it was fruitless. And it was just giving, uh, putting up airs. Uh, the harvest of figs, was. it actually had three different times of harvest for figs. I wanted to give this information to you. There was an early fig that would uh, be ripe around the end of June. There was a summer fig that would be ripe around the month of August. And there was a winter fig that was ripe around spring. What would happen is it would have the fruit on it during the winter, but it would be green all winter long, and then it would ripen up in the spring. I'm not sure what kind of fig tree this was. Um, it could be the, the um, winter fig, or it could have been the early fig, and it, it shouldn't have ripened by then. But we see in this passage um, that it was not the time for those figs to have fruit. And so it really wasn't out of the ordinary, but it gave this this facade. And the application for you and me um, is in regards to hypo- uh, hypocrisy. We see this with the nation of Israel. Mark is the only one. This appears also in Matthew. This account does in Matthew 21. But here in Mark, it come, it's actually written in a different way than it is in Mark 21. When this fig tree is cursed, it withers away. It really just emphasizes the power of Christ and praying and cursing this fig tree. But here in this passage, we see actually that Jesus curses the fig tree. And then later that day, He cleanses out the temple, rebukes the hypocrisy in the temple. And then the next day, they discover that the fig tree is withered. So it's, it's, And why, why is it written that way? I believe it's written that way for a reason. Because Jesus uh, was highlighting the hypocrisy that was within in the temple in regards to worship. I believe that's why that temple cleansing is mentioned. And then also, the fig tree was used as a symbol in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel. So it was also a rebuke to the nation of Israel for being fruitless as God's people. Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, it was used this way, "...I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness." I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first time. And in Luke chapter 13, if you want to write this down, Jesus actually gave a parable of the fig tree and He applied it to the nation of Israel. The parable went kind of like this, that um, the fig tree had been alive for three years and it still had not um, carried or bore producing any fruit. And so He talks about how the owner of the fig tree, the one who planted it and expected this fruit, was going to hew it down. But the servant says, "Hey, master, master, give it another year." And so the master does. And the same, uh, and he makes application to the nation of Israel. They had all the advantages, all the privileges. You think about the nation of Israel; they had the Word of God, they had the Old Testament scriptures that pointed to Christ. They didn't, they had no excuse for being so ignorant, but they chose to live in rebellion to God Almighty, and sometimes even mask it as being spiritual. And, they, and all kind of uh, perversities were going on in the temple that day, and they gave an appearance of worshiping God, but honestly, God saw it and He despised their hypocrisy. He seeks for our worship to be genuine, and that's the lesson for you and me as we're going to this text today. I want you to yield yourself to the Holy Spirit and how He's working in your heart. Is your worship today, or has your worship this last week in your private time with the Lord, Has it been genuine or has it been a facade? Um, Are you being genuine in your worship and service of Christ or are you living a hypocritical life? Um, God despises hypocrisy in His children. He despises hypocrisy in worship and He wants our worship to be genuine. Talking about fruit, Jesus actually mentions three fruits that I want to focus on today that should be in genuine worship. First of all, in verses 15 through 19, true, genuine worship accepts the authority of God's Word. Okay? It's biblical authority. Uh, The second, true and genuine worship, trusts the power of God. Verses 20 through 24. And then verses 25 and 26, genuine worship shows the mercy of God. And we see here... That it really does, um, it doesn't contradict the character of God when we worship Him in a genuine way. Verses 15 through 19, Jesus really highlights how the people of Israel had rejected the authority of God's word. He actually brings up God's word in His rebuke. See, worship, and this is the hypocrisy in it. When you think of worship, it's not some deep abstract idea. We we worship a lot of things in life. We give worth. We ascribe worth to different things in life. And that's exactly what worship means. is to give worth to something. It's worthwhile. And how hypocritical that here in the temple, they are, quote-unquote, worshiping God, but they are disobeying His written will that's in the Scriptures. And Jesus highlights that in verse 17. He says, "Is "...is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations..." the house of prayer but ye have made it a den of thieves see their diso- their disobedient worship produced only corruption we're going i want to highlight a couple of those things first of all it highlighted corrupt practices uh, the first practice is found in verse 15 and they come to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and seats of them that sold doves. What's going on here? Uh, The the corrupt practice is a practice of discouragement. See, their worship was not based on the Word of God, so it brought discouragement through the selling of animals. See, people would come to the temple, and we don't do this now in the New Testament church. Praise God. I know you guys have animals you can bring if you wanted to, but man, I would have been out of luck in Denver. Uh, but, you know, we don't have to bring animals to sacrifice. There's been a once-for-all sacrifice in the work of Christ. But at that time, these people were still looking forward to a Messiah because they did not rec- recognize Jesus as the Savior. And, and these uh, sellers are selling animals for the sacrifices that had to be made. And this, was not, this is not the first occasion that this happened. It actually happened earlier in the ministry of Christ and Jesus rebuked them in John chapter two verse fourteen. It says there were oxen and sheep. This verse, this passage says there were doves being sold, and so you had different animals that were being sold for different uh, social classes as well as different offerings. And so there was um, there was some very wrong motives going on being practiced here in the temple. You got the buyers, right? They're coming, and instead of bringing their oxen and their goats they would come to Jerusalem it was convenient for them just to buy the animals there so for them their heart was not in the right place because they wanted to worship God in a very convenient way so hey you know what let's have buyers in the let's have sellers in the temple so they can uh, they can make it so easy for me to just come and I don't have to really work hard with bringing this animal there then you had the sellers and the sellers would go and they would sell these animals for more than what they were worth because these people were trapped, you know. They had them trapped in the market where, hey, if you're going to be right with God, you better buy an animal. But I'm going to jack up the price, you know. And so that was going on there as well. So these selling of animals discouraged people from worshiping God, you can imagine, the financial strain. But then also, there was an exchanging of money. Now, why was there money exchanging in the temple? Uh, the reason why is because the Roman and Greek coins that were used commonly had images on them. And if you remember back to the um, Ten Commandments, God did instruct the people of Israel, thou shalt have no graven images. So if there's a graven image on that coin, we can't use it for worship. So they used that as an occasion to make people have to exchange their money. Problem is, the exchange rate was like 10 to 12 <laughs> percent, and so they gouged the people, and and they took advantage of them, so that and they all disguised it as worship, and so animals could be bought with these image imageless coins. The temple tax there was also a temple tax, and it had to be paid with imageless coins as well. And so you can see that this discouraged the people. But you know what the principle we should walk away with? Whenever your worship is not accepting or submit, submitted to the Word of God, it's always going to discourage those that are participating in it. All right? that's, that's one overarching principle that I think we can walk away with. But then also, worship was being disrupted. If you look at verse 16 and 15 and 16, Uh, It's just so busy as I read this. Just imagine the busyness of the temple. Uh, Jesus goes in and they're buying, they're selling in the temple and they have all these animals, you know. you got the pigeons and they're doing their thing. Coo-coo and, you know, littering up the temple courtyard, unfortunately. Um, Then you got the cows, you know, and the sheep. I mean, it's kind of noisy. All these animals are in the courtyard. And by the way, this is this all takes place in a portion of the temple called the the Court of the Gentiles. Uh, there was different segments where the Jewish people, the men were, you know, you had the Holy of Holies, then you had the Holy Place, then you had a courtyard for just men, then you had a court for, courtyard for just Jewish Jewish men, Jewish women, then you had a court, courtyard for the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And they were the furthest out from the Holies of Holies. So here in this courtyard and there was access on one side of the courtyard and the other and so you have all these animals and they're making all this commotion you got people selling and buying you know in this courtyard so distracting and then in verse 16 it says that Jesus would not permit people from carrying vessels through the temple so they would say hey you know what hey there's a shortcut through the temple courtyard here, we're just going to go ahead and carry our wheelbarrow through. It's so many animals anyway. We're just going to add more traffic to the area. So Jesus is like, no, no, no. You're, not. You're defeating the purpose of the temple. It's to meet and worship God from your heart. And you have all this discouragement, all this disruption. And how does Jesus respond to it? In verses 15 and 16, He cleanses the temple. And he does this again for the second time because in John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, he had done this very thing and it's only, um, it's only a short time and they're back in the temple doing it again. And he also was fulfilling prophecies from the Old Testament. Psalm 69, verse 9. It talks about the Messiah coming and it says, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord shall suddenly come to His temple, even the messenger of the covenant. So he was fulfilling these prophecies at the same time. But the principle again is when, you, when your worship neglects the authority of God's Word, when it contradicts the written Scripture and commands and principles in God's Word, it's only going to lead to a distract, distraction in your worship. You're not going to be focused on the Lord. You're going to be focused on your little pet thing. You're going to also be dis- not only uh, distracted and disrupted, but discouraged because you're not doing worship God's way. Um, Those are two applications you can take from this. But it also produced corrupt uses of the temple or of worship. Not only corrupt practices where they are discouraging people and distracting them, but also it was corrupt uses of the temple. In verses 17 and 18, it says, And Jesus taught them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. So the temple was first of all being used by the buyers, sellers, and money changers for what? Greed. It was being used for greed. And then in verse 18 it talks about the disdain of the scribes and chief priests for Christ. Why did they hate him so much? because their power resided in the temple. See, they were supposed to be the ones that were saying, calling out this sin, but it took Christ to come and say, you are contradicting Scripture. You are disobeying God's written law. The chief priests and the scribes should have been doing that. And they see Jesus standing up with a zeal for God's Word and saying you are worshiping God in the wrong way. And what's their response? I hate that guy. What what can we do to get rid of this guy? He is threatening our power over the people. See, they were using the money changers and the buyers and sellers to make a profit off the people. Don't dare think that these these scribes and chief priests weren't getting a little kickback from all this extra income in the temple. They were. But they were using the temple for power, and for greed. And Jesus' response is He confronts them with Scripture, He quotes Isaiah 56, 7, My house shall be called of all nations, the house of prayer. Mark is the only one he mentions of all nations. He does it for a reason, because they are in the courtyard of the Gentiles. And the point is, is that these people who were seek, who didn't grow up with the Word of God, but they're seeking the one true God, they're being disrupted, they're being prevented, from seeking after God by these people who were supposed to be religious. And so he calls it, he refers to Jeremiah 7, verse 11, ye have made it a den of thieves. This phrase was used in ancient times and in the book of Jeremiah for this way. A den of thieves was a place where robbers would go after they robbed a place. It was a place to lay low. To kind of conceal their sin. And that's exactly what was happening in the temple that day, Uh, and in those days, is that these scribes, these chief priests, these buyers, these sellers, these money changers were all—they were were all sinners who were just feeding their own sinful flesh, but they concealed it and masked it as spiritual and religious with the temple. It was this hypocrisy. What's the application for you and me? When Jesus encountered the the woman at the well in Samaria. What did he say? He says, God is a spirit. And they that worship Him, worship Him in spirit and in truth. You know, that's what God expects of you and me as we come and we worship Him today. Is that we would worship Him in spirit. With a genuine heart. And in truth. Based on God's Word. There would be no pretensions. That we would come to Him with a genuine heart. That we wouldn't use church. That we would come to church because... We're trying to cover up all our sins from the last week. Or that we would come to church to kind of mask and have this reputation. I'm known as a Christian, so I have to come to church. If I don't come to church, then I'm not going to hold that reputation and people are going to start wondering if I'm a Christian or not. Our motives are so important when we come to worship the Lord. And Jesus is highlighting this uh, to the people of Israel. He wants us to come and genuinely worship Him in, in obedience to His Word. Imagine this. What if Jesus came to our service today? Would He clean house? Would He confront us with His Word? That's only a question that you can answer for yourself. Second of all, your worship must not only accept the authority of the Scriptures, but also trust the power of God. Verses 20-24 uh, we see on the next day, Tuesday in the morning in verse 20, they passed by that fig tree and they saw that the tree dried up from its roots. That means that it was um, completely dead. It wasn't partially dead. In 24 hours, it was dead. It was like um, whatever that stuff you spray on it Roundup. <laughs> it's like, I don't even think Roundup works that quick. <laughs> Jesus out, uh, out uh, he, he withered up this uh, fig tree quicker than Roundup would. Supernatural roundup. Uh, But here, Peter is just so surprised in verse 21. And Peter calling to remembrance the other day, what happened, he says, Master, look! The fig tree which you cursed, it's actually withered away! And Jesus says, have faith in God. Yeah, it's one of those open foot insert mouth moments again for Peter. But what Jesus is saying here when He says, have faith in God, is he saying, Where is the object of your faith? Is it in the power of God? He wants, he's instructing them to pray with confidence in God's power. Where does the object of your faith lie? Is it in the power of God, or is it in your faith alone? And uh, verse 23, he says, For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. What is he saying there in verse 23? Pray believing God can do the impossible. That phrase about moving mountains, uh, we don't know if he was referring to you know, the Mount of Olives or the Holy Mount where the temple was, but that would be an impossible task. And we see that phrase in Scripture, and what that represents is not just moving a literal mountain, but it's a phrase, it's a figurative phrase to say, God can do the impossible and when we go to prayer we need to pray confidently and James chapter one really refers to this in regards to praying for wisdom that we should not pray as a double-minded man for wisdom you know being tossed in to and fro because God's not going to answer those prayers we need to pray with confidence in God's power to do the impossible but then verse 24 therefore I say unto you whatsoever things ye Desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and ye shall have them. Not only pray that God can do the impossible, but pray that God will grant your request. It's basically that ye shall have them, He says in that verse. And ye shall have them. And that's talking about believing before you ever receive it. There's one thing. That, there's one uh, way to say, yeah, I believe Je- that Jesus answered prayer after He already answered it. But it's one sense where you say, I believe He's going to... Answer my prayer. I believe He's going to answer it and that He's heard my prayer before He ever answers it his, according to His will. Uh, one criticism that, uh, or perversion that some people bring to this passage, they say, oh, look at there. Look at there. If you pray with faith, see? you know, If you pray believing, it's all up to your faith. If you, you didn't have an answer to prayer, it's because of your faith. You, have, you lacked faith. And what Jesus is getting to here, and it's actually taught in Matthew chapter 21, the parallel passage, is that you're not putting your faith and your confidence in your faith or in your desires. You're putting it in the power of God, but also other Scriptures in the New Testament that complement this passage instruct us to pray according to God's will as well. That we should be confident, pray confidently not only in God's power, but also in According to his will, that his will is right and good for us, and that the object of our faith is in his will as well. Uh, look at mark chapter fourteen verse thirty one. It's coming uh here at the uh, in a couple of chapters, but just want to show you a practice from the life of of Christ. but uh here, oh I think I got the wrong the wrong verse. Oh man, it's it's not verse uh, thirty one I'm sorry, but he uh, says, oh, sorry, I made a mistake and I don't want to take time to try to find find it. You guys are very familiar with the Garden of Gethsemane and when Jesus prayed in the garden. and uh, sorry about the misreference here, but uh, when Jesus was praying, many of you are familiar with this. when he was praying in the garden, how did he pray? He prayed, not My will be done, but Thine be done. And that is uh, the practice and the example that Jesus did teach His disciples and He has taught us in the Gospels as well. Did Jesus, when He prayed in the the Garden of Gethsemane, did He pray believing that, Lord, take this cup from Me? Did He pray that half-heartedly? Yeah, no, He didn't. He believed that God could take it from Him. He believed in the power of God that He could take it from Him. But he still prayed for God's will to be done and not his own. Because he came to minister, not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. So there's several fruits that should be included in our worship. First of all, accepting the authority of Scripture. Second of all, trusting the power of God. And then last of all, showing the mercy of God. This is part of it. And a lot of times we... Don't like to look at this part. Verses 25-26. through 26, And when you stand praying, forgive. If you have ought against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Here, Jesus again addresses prayer as a form of worship. It's not just an exercise of futility. It's actually a, an act of worship and de- declaring our dependence on God. But we see here that when you show that you can show the mercy of God by forgiving others, the problem is is that we hold grudges. And we see here in verse 25 that we should forgive anything in prayer, anything. He says, "Forgive if ye have ought against." So that would be something, anything. If that's an actual sin that someone has done against you personally, or it's actually used if you have ought against somebody. Personally, because you have a conflict of personality, there are people in this world that are just annoying. There's Christians that are just annoying, you know. And sometimes our our personalities are they conflict naturally. But the awesome thing about the church, as mentioned this in Sunday school, is that the Lord Jesus Christ, according to First Corinthians chapter twelve, has fitly framed us together. So that person with their quirky personality if David trusted Christ as their personal Savior, if they're trying to live an obedient Christian life, they're trying to walk worthy of the Lord, they may have a quirky personality, but God has them in this church for a reason. And we should never treat them differently because we have ought against their personality. Maybe they're a type A personality and you're not. Or maybe it's two type A personalities fighting with one another. You know, We need to make sure that we are striving for this peace and that there is forgiveness when... Someone accidentally offends you. And that we're not overly sensitive in the body of Christ. Uh, That we don't hold on to grudges in regards to sin or even just grudges against how that person is (laughs) sometimes. But that we would forgive anything in prayer, but then also forgive anyone in prayer. It says forgive any, any, anyone. That would be a believer or an unbeliever. It's not really restricted. It's very general. And so we need to uphold this standard of forgiveness. And can you see the area of hypocrisy here? You know, in the area of accepting the authority of the Scriptures and you're worshiping, it's hypocritical when you're disobeying God's written will, right? That's pretty obvious. You know, you're saying, I'm worshiping God. He's reverent. He's He's my God. You know, I'm going to obey Him, but you're really not. That's hypocritical. Then you have prayer where you you pray, but you don't pray with confidence in the power of God to answer that prayer, that's hypocritical because it's an act of dependence. It's an expression of your dependence on God, but you really are not dependent on Him. And then you have forgiveness, where you're unwilling to forgive that person who has sinned against you, or they just annoy you to no end, and, you can't, and you're just not willing to get along with them and serve Christ together with them, and you're not willing to forgive them when they offend you. How is that hypocritical? Because you have been forgiven by God Almighty, and you know, and it mentions that here in uh, verse twenty-four that uh, we need that we need the forgiveness of God, of God as well. It's actually verse twenty-five. When you stand praying, forgive if you have ought against any that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. See, when we forgive one another, it really proves that we're genuinely repentant toward God about our own sins in life. If we say, um, you know, God's forgiven me for this thing, but I'm not willing to forgive you, it's so hypocritical. And God despises that type of hypocrisy. And so, uh, just to wrap up my message today, we need I want you to walk away with from this passage and what Jesus is trying to illustrate is that Jesus and God, <laughs> the Son of God, Jesus, He despises hypocrisy and His people. He, de- he despises hypocrisy and worship. And if you want to worship Christ in a genuine way, it has to be submitted. Your worship must be submitted to the authority of the Scriptures. When you worship Him, you must trust in God's power to do the impossible, to answer, his, uh, answer your requests according to His will, and it shows His mercy and how we show mercy to one another. Let me ask you, How are you worshiping Christ? As we put this in the context of the triumphal entry, Jesus has come in. These people are all excited. And they're ready and they want to receive Christ. But He still loves them even in in spite of their hypocrisy. And let me tell you and encourage you today, if you've been living a a hypocritical Christian life, Don't say, well, I give up. I'm such a terrible Christian. I'm never going to be able to serve the Lord. You know what? Jesus never gave up on these people. He still went to the cross. He still was going to go give His life, and He was going to uh, be raised from the dead and overcome sin and death. And He hasn't given up on you either, even though you may have hypocrisies that you've been tolerating in your life. Let's not use those as excuses not to do what's right. Let's use those as excuses to get right with God. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank You so much for this passage of Scripture and the depth of it. I pray that you would, um, Your Holy Spirit would continue to make application in our hearts and search our hearts and see if there's any wicked way in us. Lord, if someone needs to make a public decision today, uh, maybe in regards to salvation if they haven't accepted Christ, or they need to follow You uh, in obedience to in believers' baptism or uh, joining a Bible believing, Bible practicing church, pray that uh, they would make that decision as you are leading them. But some of us just maybe need to pray in our pew. We just need to be honest with you and we need to kind of rededicate our, our lives and our hearts because we have kind of been going through the motions. We've been heartless in our worship, we've been thoughtless, we've been distracted. It hasn't been genuine. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Pray your Holy Spirit will work in our time of invitation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.